I invite you now to take a Bible and turn with me for an ongoing study in Peter's letter to persecuted Christians scattered throughout the then known world. When he writes on the first Lord's Day of this new year, 2010, which was January the 3rd, we moved from our old sanctuary to what we called the chapel down the way here, which was a converted fellowship hall. I've been praying for the fellowship hall salvation for a long time. And for three whole months, it was our place of worship. If you were here, you know that. On that first Sunday, way back in the beginning of that new year, our journey here in Peter's first epistle uh, was begun. And on the next to last Sunday in March, three months later, We concluded a consideration of the first chapter and its 25 verses. And then, as you know, came our time of special dedication of this new sanctuary to the glory of God on Palm Sunday. And last Lord's Day, our hearts rejoiced at the, well, the perennial announcement that Christ is risen from the dead. He is risen indeed today. We come back now to Peter's Testament under the banner for this series, A Living Hope in the Worst of Times. Providing that overall theme is the key verse in chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, our first century brothers and sisters were living in extremely difficult times. Life uh, in general was hard, but to be a believer in Christ was to most certainly face the loss of everything that you and I would probably call necessities. And for many, loyalty to Christ meant literally laying down their lives. I would say that what we tend to call the worst of times, or the things that we stress about, would probably, to Peter's congregation, seem like a walk in the park. So we can be confident that what Peter writes in this letter is way more, or perhaps I should say, abundantly sufficient to help us, to help us at least to become even more committed to Christ and his cause in our difficult times. Ours in every circumstance of life, we learned in that first chapter, is a living hope. Because as we saw there, it is Christ himself who is our hope. So because he lives, we can face every tomorrow until he beckons us home. What then is the next word Peter has for us? It is the word, therefore. That is the first word in the first verse of chapter 2. And it indicates, of course, that we must reconnect with that which has already been said in chapter 1. So for the reading of our scripture today, we will have you follow 
from chapter one. Let's go as far back as verse 22 and conclude at chapter two at verse three. Chapter one at verse 22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But... The word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it, You may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, grant to us a fresh vision of our risen Lord. Take these ancient words of your servant Peter and the labors of your unworthy servant today and give us ears to hear. To hear and to respond to that which would make us more suitable vessels of honor for your name and for your glory. Amen. This week I invested a little time reading material from the earliest days of church history. There lived a man by the name of Aristides, just one lifetime away from the time of Peter and the writing of this epistle. And it seems fairly evident, the more I read of Aristides, that this Greek historian came himself to faith in Christ as a result of his research into the growth of Christianity in his day. Here's a sampling of what he discovered about believers in Christ not long after Peter's Martyrdom. They, Christians, he means, observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care, living justly and soberly. Every morning and through the day they give thanks and praise to God for his loving kindnesses toward them and for their food and their drink. They offer thanksgiving to him. They appeal to those who injure them and try to win them as friends. They are eager to do good to their enemies. They are gentle and yet full of courage. They abstain from all impurity and give ungrudgingly for the needs of others. Their minds and hearts are fixed in hope and the expectation of a world to come. Therefore, they do not commit adultery or fornication. 
nor bear false witness, nor covet what is not theirs. They call one another brother and sister, not after the flesh, but after the spirit and in God. Now, what Aristides and others observed, I was thinking, may well have been the fruit of the Apostle Peter's admonition that those who have been born again, as we just read, are to be known for putting aside all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. But, you know, beloved History can be kind. History is oftentimes romanticized a bit, even sanitized. I've wondered for a long time, did honest Abe really chop down the cherry tree and tell his mom the truth about it all? Now, don't get me wrong, to be a student of history, and especially church history, is vitally important But at the same time, I want to say that no history other than that recorded in the Bible can can be said to be totally objective. When we read the epistles of Paul, Peter, James, John, and Jude, we get the most accurate view of the earliest Christians. In fact, it is in many cases a painfully accurate view. Perhaps we do have a secular record of the church at her very best, but she is not quite the bride of Christ we might like to imagine. There are still quite a few spots and wrinkles. Today, we would say the Bible addresses true believers, warts and all. You are, for the most part, a biblically literate congregation, and you don't need me to enunciate the considerable, well, the considerable sins of God's people that Paul had to address, for example, in his letter to the Corinthians. Remember how he had to confront a sin in the church that wasn't even all that popular or even approved by pure pagans. If Aristides had looked a little closer or Maybe he did when he finally joined one of the churches. He would have found Christians who on occasion, apparently, acted with malice. Were not without guile. Who were sometimes hypocritical. At times taken up with the green monster of envy. And who has not at one time or another, no, perhaps even lots of times, used their tongues to slander others? Remember, the Apostle James would say that you and I are not perfect Christians until we have complete control over our tongues. What am I saying? Well, I'm saying in other words, brothers and sisters... None of us are that good. We just aren't. None of us are that good. If holiness of life were an automatic thing, 
We wouldn't have to be told to deal with such ugly things as malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. This is a letter addressed to believers. And that by no means is a complete uh, sin list. There are others in the scriptures, but Peter's focus is intentionally narrow in this context. He's majoring on those problems, yes, among professing believers that would directly threaten the peace and the unity of this new family of God relationship. It's all about relationships. Back in verse 22 of chapter 1, where we began to read a little while ago, the apostle is concerned that we practice a sincere love of the brethren. He says, fervently love one another from the heart. Apparently, that is something we need to be told to do. Not only to love, but even how to love. To love fervently. He links the ethical command to love with the fact That we have been born again. In verse 21, it says, we through him are believers in Christ. And in verse 23, he says, we have been born again through the living and enduring word of God. Loving God, loving each other, while that's not the way to earn God's favor, Peter argues that it is the only real evidence of having received God's favor. They'll know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You see, by nature, and apart from God's effectual grace, we were never so loving. Basically, we just loved those who loved us, that served our own interests, or were our own blood, and even there, some have failed to even express what the world would call a natural affection. You see, the fruit of our unregenerate hearts was far more characterized by such things as we've just read, this list, malice, deceit, envy, and slander. It really is the way of the world, isn't it, on any Monday morning? These are what the Apostle Paul called the works of the sinful flesh. In Galatians 5, for example, to name a few, he listed immorality, sensuality, enmities, jealousy, outbursts of anger, envying, etc., etc. But again, it is addressed to the church, to believers. Not a pretty picture. But I would suggest a valid snapshot of our indwelling sinful depravity, which too often does indeed express itself. And I have to say that there is nothing I find in the Bible concerning the work of redemption that ever changes the workings of our sinful flesh. Flesh, sinful flesh, remains sinful and remains With us, and it is unchanged. Though one day, of course, it will be laid aside, and we look forward to that. But that'll be when we lay aside as well our literal flesh. What the Apostle Paul, in his struggle with the flesh, called this body of death. How he looked forward to being free of these particular sins and temptations 
to sin in these ways. But in the meantime, the flesh wages war against the principle of new life in us, the spirit. And the spirit wages war against the flesh. And it seems we get no rest. The principle of sin perpetually raises its ugly head. We are grateful that we can cry with the Apostle Paul, for example, and say, thanks be to God for the ultimate victory we have and that we will completely have, but not until the coming of Christ. So in the meantime, or as I have in this epistle, those of you who've been here, I sometimes, you know, emphasize the first part of that word. In the meantime, Peter is saying, Warning, reminding us, every believer is vulnerable to these things. Malice. Any believer can so easily be given to deceit, hypocrisy. A Christian can envy. A believer can use their tongue destructively. In fact, the emphasis in Scripture, I find, is this. That without a proactive pursuit of godliness, somehow we will constantly, as they say in the computer world, default to our original settings. The reprogramming is necessary every single day. We need to reset our hearts and our minds to the standard of God's word. Well, we only have a little time to define these terms, but when you do expository preaching, we do have to look at these words, even though they're not very pretty. What is malice? It is when something we do or say, listen to this word which grows out of that old word, malice, How about the word malicious? Why, it even sounds like what it is. It is something vicious. We might find ourselves, if we are ever the target of malice, saying something like this, even of a fellow believer. I just can't believe that he or she could be so mean. Or we sometimes put the adjective to the problem we have of gossip. We call it malicious gossip. It's putting the worst possible construction on another person's words and actions where there is absolutely no foundation in fact. It is really an ugly thing, isn't it? And it heads the list here. In this text, in its worst form, it is doing evil just for evil's sake. Because that nature, that flesh, apart from the grace of God, it loves evil. Malice, it can be found especially, I think, among the most self-righteous. Left to our own designs, we would all want to be the one who gets to throw the first stone. 
until one man by the name of Jesus comes and begins to expose our own sins. And that's what it takes. And he will say to the woman caught in adultery. So what happened to your accusers? Where are those malicious accusers now? And what does he say in contrast? He comes not with malice as they did. He comes with kindness and leaves her with the words, Neither do I condemn thee. And that from the man who had no sin. Malice. If it has an antonym, if it has an antidote, and it does, we will see it is the kindness of the Lord. Every word or deed of ours toward another, you see, that isn't bathed in grace and motivated by mercy has the taint of malice in it. We are to be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. What a study in contrast between that natural, that work of our depraved flesh that gives way to malice versus the beauty of the fruit of the Spirit. The second word he gives us is guile. At least that's the way the King James Version puts it. What is guile or deceit? In this text, let me say, if you've heard about gifts of the spirit, which every believer has, then this thing called guile or deceit is the gift of the devil to our flesh. Guile, deceit. It has the uh, hiss of the serpent in it. It is the manipulating of others in the same way the serpent manipulated Eve. And Adam. Flattery of speech, perhaps, but simply to get something for oneself. And I think it has a particularly heinous expression when Christians will even use spiritual language to manipulate their brothers and sisters for what is ultimately self-serving motives. It is speech crafted in such a way so as to move others in a direction that almost always ends up being contrary to truth. It excites wrong motives. It is simply manipulating others with our speech. Guile. And he's writing to Christians. Now, let me ask, do we really need a dictionary to define hypocrisy? (laughs) Don't you think we Christians spend quite a bit of time and energy, wear ourselves out sometimes, pretending to be what we know we are not? One example of that, I think, is when we give words to people that seemingly express our deep Interest, our concern, or even our affection. But then you know what happens. Out of sight, out of mind. And usually by the third visit, it's like, oh no, here she or he comes again. We say too often we care while 
in reality, we don't lift a finger. It's just too easy to say, I'll pray for you. While at the same time being thankful, we haven't been asked to actually get involved. It is, of course, pretending to be a more godly person than we actually are. And I'll say again, because I love you, none of us are that good. Envy. Underline it in green, if you'd like. Now, that green-eyed monster that is envy. I'm not going to take a lot of time with this. I found a way to define it some years ago. It works for me whenever it's a problem in my life. I've discovered it simply means this. I want what you have, so I hate you. Does that work? I want what she has. I want what he has. I want what you have. So I hate you. Slander. This is a form of of verbal violence. The Apostle James goes so far as to call it emotional murder. How skilled we are when this sin is active. We simply can latch on to things that are nothing more than appearances and we make them into a damning lie. Destroying character and reputation. Slander. Well, this list so far that we've been involved with sort of makes you want to take a bath, doesn't it? Yet it is written to those Peter addresses earlier, you remember in the first chapter, as the chosen of God. Those who have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ and sanctified by the Spirit. Those, he says in chapter 1 and verse 2, who are called to obey Jesus Christ. While the battle between flesh and spirit is a daily one, until Jesus comes, at this point we want to ask the question, is there anything we can do? To keep keep such sins in check? The answer, of course, is yes. This is the wonder of God's word. It not only exposes our need, but gives to us the answer we need. Peter says, verse 1, chapter 2, put them aside. Lay them aside. The Greek word employed by the Holy Spirit through Peter is a word most frequently used of simply changing clothes. Taking off one's old, soiled garments, getting rid of them. few experiences in my life, there was nothing left to do with what was left than to burn them. Peter may have borrowed the imagery from Paul, who in various places describes our sanctification, the pursuit of, of godliness as putting off certain sins while putting on new behaviors. Some worthy commentators suggest that Peter may be reminding his readers actually of their baptism, saying to them, just as you testified of dying to sin in the symbol of burial, and just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so take off the grave clothes 
and put on the white raiment of righteousness. Put off these things. Put on these things. The technical Greek tense of this language, interestingly enough, is not so much a command. When he says, lay them or put them aside, it's not really an imperative. What he's actually doing is pointing to the rationale, the reasonableness for a change in behavior. That which would make our efforts worthy. He is saying, as he said in the previous verses, you have been born again by the pure and abiding, imperishable seed of the Word of God. Now let that seed bring a harvest of new fruit. Some things just don't belong. Oh, the flesh may still cry out after malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. It will assert itself, but it shall not have dominion. Lay it aside. There is something better. Peter's going to say that, in fact, there's something wonderful. There's something that God wants to put in the place of those things. And so we ask the question, well, how does God do that? How, is this, how does this work? And that's when we move to verse 2. In verse 2, here is God's antidote to the workings of our sinful flesh. He says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Understand that malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, and slander are all part of your fallenness. And there's only one cure. And that cure is the Word of God itself. And you need to take it in. Like newborn babies. Get that picture. The Word is strong like craving the pure milk of the Word. Beloved, I want to make a distinction for us today. It needs to be made in our day. It's not just that the Bible has the answers. It is that the Bible, the pure milk of the Word, is the answer. How often we turn to the Scriptures, we've named our problem. Usually we get it wrong in terms of our diagnosis. We say this is our problem, but I discover the Bible says no. It takes the two-edged sword to get down deep into the inner workings of your heart in order to even name the problem. We need the Word of God to diagnose as well as to treat. We don't name a situation and then find some verses to support it or even to make us feel a little better. It is not that the Bible contains answers. The Bible, according to Peter, is the answer. A believer constantly nourished by the Word of God is enabled to lay aside the works of the flesh while bearing the fruit of the Spirit. A love expressing itself in a contagious joy. Bringing peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. Self-control. Though 
those who belong to Christ, the Scriptures say, have put to death, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, and we do, let us also walk by the Spirit. And I want to remind you, actually, I want Peter to remind us, your Bible is the Word of the Spirit. It is alive. It is powerful. It is able to go to the deepest parts of your being and mine. It does discern our thoughts. Don't think we're so clever. It reveals our motives. It not only teaches the truth, the Scriptures alive reprove and rebuke and exhort and encourage, and overall, it is training us in all the paths of righteousness so that we would walk to honor and bring glory to His name. Why are we turning everywhere else for answers? Some have used too loosely the phrase Bible-based. Why go for Bible-based stuff when you can have the pure milk, he says, of the Word of Truth? I'm not trying to be too cute here, but I'm tempted at this point to say, got milk? This, Peter says, this milk is the soul's true food. The source of strength to say no to sin and yes to Christ-like behavior. Like newborn babies, long for it, crave it, can't get enough of it. What? The pure milk of the Word, so that by it, the Word of God, you may grow in respect to salvation. Got milk? Renews the mind, and as a result, it transforms the behavior. With a 19-year-old at home and a daughter who's turning 21 this very month, uh, I still haven't forgotten. Just ask the parents who've had their first precious baby home from the hospital. Oh, ask them in about the end of the first week or week and a half. They love the baby. They absolutely adore the baby. But I can tell you what almost every one of them are heard to say, and I think you know what it is. Oh, for at least one good night of sleep. More often than not, my wife had to hear at the 3 a.m., I think it's your turn. You see, a newborn baby has one supreme desire, and it isn't to follow Christ. Not yet, at least. It's for milk! Ever watch a really hungry baby go after the nipple? Whether it be mother's breast or bottle? It knows its very life depends upon the next feeding. And no one will get any rest until that need is met. It's like that, Peter says. You need to crave the pure spiritual milk of the Word. Oh, that all that noise in church would be the sound of sucking 
not on some hard piece of candy wrapped in those infernal, noisy wrappers. Yeah, I meant you. But that it would be the noise of Christians pushing through all the other days of the week just to get where the pure milk of the Word is the true food for their souls. They must have it and let no preacher rest until he gives it. By the way, there are no additives needed in this milk. Take a trip to Publix up the street and there's every kind of milk like there's now every kind of orange juice, it seems. And we add this and we extract that and we put this in. This word pure milk means with nothing added, the unadulterated, pure truth as it is. The only place you find that is in the Bible itself. Even every sermon is a mixture. Every sermon's in danger of, of adding things that, that were never intended in some text. That's why you pray for your pastor. He could get it right. One of our dear snowbirds just a week or so ago shared with me that it would be very difficult to go north, even though it's home. They said, because I'm in a church that just doesn't feed its flock this True nourishment of God's Word. They said to me, you spoiled me with your teaching and the preaching. Now, folks, I do not share that as some kind of self-congratulation or, or a compliment to myself. But to illustrate the truth of verse 3, Peter says, If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, just get a taste of this. And if you're a child of God... You'll want a feast of it, and you'll soon find nothing else satisfies. And there is just so much junk food coming from our pulpits today. What does Peter know? He is telling his people that if they could just be feeding on that word till they get a taste of Christ Himself in that living Word, they will want more. A new appetite will soon replace the old jaded taste of the world. A mess of pottage. And in the place of malice, which is a delicious thing to the flesh, comes instead the kindness of the Lord. Where do I discover his kindness to me, I tell you, for who I am, if I can't come back to the Word of God almost every morning to hear Him say again, Jim, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And I'm a father to you and I will not let you go. I discover His kindness. I taste it again and again in the Word and I have to keep coming back to it. And for guile and deceit, there is instead now a, a sweet taste. It's, it's honey from the rock of God's truth. His, his word again. Taste and see. The freedom to get real. Oh, that God would give us more of that as a church family. To get real with one another. Once and all. You see, it actually requires less effort than wearing a mask 
of hypocrisy. And then there's the treasures of God's word. It's the answer to this default problem of envy that's just part of our flesh. and will be till Jesus takes us home. If it's to be kept in check, I must discover the greater treasures of God's word. Because then that will leave me with nothing to envy of those fading and rusting possessions of others. I'm discovering a little bit I might even learn to love rich people. Because I'm not envying what they have. And in some cases pitying them for trading earthly riches for the treasure house of God's word. Since you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. I know the word is if in most of our English Bibles. It would have better been translated from the Greek since we've tasted the kindness of the Lord. What's it do to slander, by the way? That problem with the tongue, the really big problem we have? Well, I sort of have concluded this. What would be the point of saying something really bad, true or not, about someone else when I contemplate that God himself could say more bad things about me that are true than I could ever make up about someone else. See, if I've tasted that kindness of the Lord, that He comes to me with words that do not condemn, though He could. Instead, He says, you know, Jim, I know about all those issues. I just want to remind you today, I'm not ashamed when you call me Father. And I'm not ashamed to call you my son. Peter says, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, those fleshly appetites are like so much junk food that simply cannot satisfy. I tell my wife all this, this all the time, sometimes with a schedule that's pretty hectic and, and uh, there's no time to cook a well-balanced and nutritious meal. And I said, ah, we'll just get a burger and we worship at the Golden Arches at noon or whatever the case may be. And, and we, we shove it down and, and, and a little of the grease on the, whatever that thing is, they call a hamburger. It, somehow there's a momentary sense of pleasure on the tongue, but I'm hardly out of the place and into the car and I'm saying, well, that sure just doesn't cut it. That doesn't satisfy. But oh, to sit down at a feast as I did with my loved ones gathered around last Lord's Day. Many of you had that privilege, special Lord's Day, Resurrection Day, and many of you celebrated our living Christ by breaking bread with others. And what a feast, what a delight, what a greater feast when the bread of life and the Word of God is broken. It's real food for our souls. This pure, unadulterated milk the nourishment that we extract from God's Word. Peter says it will make us grow in respect to this great salvation which we never deserved and yet has been lavished upon us by the surpassing grace of God in Christ. Most of us would do well to get intimately 
acquainted all over again with the Word of God, which is where we have heard earlier in music and word in this hour. We meet Christ Himself. We cannot do without it. We cannot be healthy and strong and bring Him glory apart from this. Would you stand with me at this time and let me pray for us in these matters. Standing together, please. Let your heart cry with mine. Oh God, turn us to your word. Let us get a taste and help us like newborn babies to drink often, to drink deep and to Drink to our soul's delight and prepare us to be those who can handle the meat of the word so the world can know that you really do change the life of one who has put their trust in Christ. In his name and for his glory, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.